for AZPM. I'm Christopher Conover, filling in for Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, meet Faviana Rodriguez, a participant in the Humanities Festival. She's an artist who finds her identity through justice and storytelling. We'll also hear from Carrie Mayer about her latest book, All You Have to Do is Call, a novel based on the underground initiatives that served women before Roe versus Wade. And we'll take a journey down Skid Row as Mark talks with the cast of an upcoming production of The Little Shop of Horrors. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. This week, we continue our journey into the final few weeks of the University of Arizona's annual Humanities Festival. This year's theme encompasses the different definitions and influences that can create self-image and identity. One presenting artist finds her identity through art expressing justice and storytelling. ACPM's Paula Rodriguez spoke with Faviana Rodriguez about her latest art installation and how she navigated her identity to understand the stories she wants to tell through her work. So how did your proximity to, you know, a push for justice influence your journey not only as an artist, but also on your path to become an artist? Well, I would say that growing up in a black and brown community just really taught me that the same racist laws and policies that affect black people, that lock black people up, that dehumanize black people are the same ones that dehumanize and exploit Latine people. So I saw the parallels of that in my community. And I also witnessed how anti-Latine narrative shaped anti-immigrant policies, you know, shaped policies that really harmed Latine families and that criminalized us. I'm the daughter of Peruvians. And so I've always had a very Latin American identity. Like I know the revolutions that happened throughout Latin America. And I grew up in a very Chicanex community. And I also really saw and learned the history of the United States in terms of colonizing Mexico and exploiting Mexicans and exploiting the indigenous people of these lands. There needed to be the predominance and normalization of very disgusting anti-Latine narratives. And I saw that. And when you combine that with the absence of positive Latine representation, you know, Dora the Explorer didn't exist yet. Selena hadn't come out. We didn't have TV shows that depicted Latine people. So when you combine invisibility with hyper over criminalization, it's a recipe for disastrous policies. And those policies continue to affect us today. Art and culture were a way to combat that, that through our culture, we could show the stories of who we really were as human beings and our complex identities. We deserve equitable policies, not just to be exploited and locked up and deported. Your parents are Peruvian. You're Peruvian. They they migrated from Peru in the 1960s to the United States, California. Do you consider yourself a first-generation American? I know that's always a term that's thrown up there. Yes, I do. I consider myself a first-generation American. And I love that question because I am an American. And 
it's taken me a long time to claim that because it was hard for me to feel deep connections to my homeland because I didn't get to go back for almost 15 years to Peru. Most of my Latine identity is actually shaped by the culture that we know today as Mexico because of my proximity to the people of Mexico and the people throughout that entire land. And, you know, I mean, I grew up reading Sheri Moraga and um, Gloria Anzaldúa, and I really related to the fact that I was neither from here nor there because when I would go to Mexico or Lima, Mexico City or Lima, I also didn't feel like I belonged. I felt like a lot of my ideas around gender and queerness were so punished there. And I actually rarely felt safe as a young woman in those cities. And similarly here, I didn't see positive representations of myself. So I also didn't always feel like an American because the overwhelming image of who is an American is a white cis person. But this is my home and this is where I'm rooted now. And I do believe, as James Baldwin said, that when you love your country, you criticize your country. You want your country to evolve into a place where we can thrive and belong. How does that identity where it's like being on the in-between influence your work and how you move forward and understanding the complexities between all these intersections and how we define justice? Well, I believe that art and culture help complicate the narrative. I don't believe in binaries. I don't believe that there is a right or a wrong. I think that we have to understand the complexity of our lived experience and art allows for us to do that. You know, having grown up in the United States means that I've gotten to witness a black liberation movement that has shaped the entire world. That is a gift of living where I live and growing up in this country. And so through my art, I try to complicate the narrative and I also try to show aspects of any issue from a non-dominant perspective. And art gives us the ability to uplift an idea that may have not always been seen or has been obscured. And so the power that I have as an artist is to inject that idea and to disrupt the narrative. And that's what I do. I am a human being who lives at the intersection of many identities. And I do my best to complicate all of the aspects of my identity, as well as to disrupt the dominant narratives that have hurt me and have hurt other people who are in similar bodies to me. And and I would say that's the essence of what I try to do as an artist. You will be here for two weeks um, for a residency at the University of Arizona, also for the Humanities Festival. But you're not only just sharing your installation, but you're holding community conversations about these issues. What seeds are you hoping to plant in the minds of these community members when they learn more about these issues? First, in addition to being artists, I am a cultural strategist. I am an entrepreneur. I am the president of a national arts organization. And there's so much that I have learned through my practice that I want to share and empower other people on how to create your own startup, on how to manage a small business, how to build powerful teams. 
because I think that when we are talking about building power, we need to build institutions, right? We can't just continue working in white-led organizations. We need to build alternative infrastructures that are designed and built by and serve impacted communities. And I believe that strongly. And so I'm excited to be able to share some of my perspectives, how I've created institutions, how it is that I collaborate with major movements throughout the country. My intent is to share my knowledge and empower other artists, other movement leaders, other cultural strategists. And so I'm really looking forward to the community events where we're going to get to talk about some of these themes and also make art together. Justice is a journey. um, And every single person has a different definition of what that looks like for them. For you, what does justice look like? For me, justice looks like the ability for all human beings to thrive in harmony with nature. And when I mean thrive, I mean that we have access to clean water, clean air, and jobs that will actually help us sustain a healthy relationship to this planet. Not dominating nature, not extracting from nature, but being in a regenerative relationship to nature so that the planet is inhabitable for the next seven generations. And it means that we will grow up free from racism and gender violence and homophobia and xenophobia, because all of those things impact us. They not only impact our imagination, they impact our bodies. That was AZPM's Paula Rodriguez speaking with artist and cultural strategist Faviana Rodriguez. Her art installation will close off the festival on Tuesday, October 24th at 7 p.m. in the Poetry Center. You can find a link to all of the 2023 Humanities Festival events on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. Before there was Roe v. Wade, women had fewer options when it came to their reproductive rights. That's when the Jane Collective came along. It was an underground women's health clinic aimed to curb the increasing amount of unsafe abortions being performed throughout the nation. Next, Leah Britton talks with the author Carrie Mayer about her latest novel, All You Have to Do is Call. It's a historical fiction loosely based on the movement. Hi, I am Carrie Mayer, and I am the author of All You Have to Do is Call, which is a novel that just came out, a historical novel that is loosely based on the women of the Jane Collective, um, who were a real-life group of feminists in Chicago in the early 1970s who operated an underground women's health clinic for the women of Chicago. And they started really as an abortion referral service and ultimately took over the whole process to be an entirely female-run operation. Um, They actually, these were lay women, lay practitioners who learned to do the procedure themselves. Although I take the the real life concept of the Jane Collective, all of my characters are entirely fictional. So that's actually a major difference from my first three historical novels, which were about real women. So the characters in this novel are, are fictional. Right off that, I loved each one of your characters for different reasons. When you were creating them, did you have specific people in your life in mind? 
You know, it's such a good question. I wish I could give a simple answer, but you know, there's a little bit, um, I really subscribe to a very woo woo theory of writing um, because it feels that way to me. You know, it's like the characters really do just present themselves to me and say, hi, you know, I'm Veronica, I'm Patty and I'm Margaret. Those are the three point of view characters, but there are many very important secondary characters in this novel who we don't hear from directly. I would say that the three point of view characters have a little piece of me in each of them that I, I felt like I was able to connect with them on a personal level about something, you know, in their lives. But I actively try not to think of specific people in my life when I'm writing. Um, obviously, all the many people I've known in my life and, and spoken to influence me and impact the characters I create. But there's not not like a composite character or anything like that. I was just curious, was there anything that you just took away from each of the characters as you were writing their stories? You know, there's something that I say in my author's note that I think sums up my general answer to this question, which is that there's no them. It's all us. That this idea that like mothers don't give and get abortions is, is a false dichotomy. Um, that like people who are involved um, in providing reproductive health care are somehow other from the rest of us is ridiculous, right? We are really all in this together. And I don't want to drop any spoilers. <laughs> um, Veronica, though, you know, who's one of the main, the point of view characters, who is a founding member of Jane in the novel, she obviously has a very, what we would call pro-choice point of view. The two other characters, Margaret also volunteers for Jane. Patty, the third point of view character, has a more complicated view in the novel. And, you know, I, I thought it was really important to have Patty have an internal struggle and an internal journey with this subject matter. Um, and that's all I'm going to say at this point. <laughs> I hope that will entice readers to to pick up the book. I think so. Another thing I took note of as I was reading the story is that you capture relationships at different points and at different levels of intensity, right? Of course, yeah. Um, yeah. What were you hoping to convey through that motif? You know, I really wanted to explore the the wonderfully rich and complicated textured dynamics of female friendship and also of, I mean, in this case, heterosexual relationships, right? So in this novel, we have two long-term marriages, two, one very long-term woman-to-woman friendship. Um, and we have a number of other like newer friendships and alliances between women um, that form in the course of the novel. And I really wanted to explore different kinds of friendships, um, the ways in which adult friendships can be harder to form, but can be incredibly long lasting and rewarding and intense when they happen. Um, and the ways in which we also hang on to the people of our youth. There's something incomparable about those relationships you know eventually the adult relationships we have last almost as long and it's like by the time we get to 50 years old we're like well what's the difference really between 25 and 15 years at this point but when you're younger those are meaningful differences why do you think the story of the jane collective is resonating with audiences now well there's dobbs <laughs> i started writing this book long before dobbs i started writing it in 2020 
But many other things happen along the way, right? There's the pandemic, um, there's the Trump presidency, and and then there's Dobbs. I actually hope that one of the things that resonates with people, and it's because it's certainly influenced my writing, is there's a little bit of pandemic thematics in this. You know, one of the things we saw during the pandemic was how nurses and doctors and other frontline workers, their call to service to, to care for other human beings was really amazing. And like, I mean, we just sort of all, the rest of us kind of like stood in awe of that. And the women of Jane did that also. When women's backs were up against a wall and the law was unjust, they did what had to be done at risk to themselves, okay? So that call to service was something that I felt like I got to see up close and personal during the pandemic and definitely influenced my writing. And then we have Dobbs. Um, I was revising when Dobbs happened and it didn't change the book, but I absolutely wound up going back into the manuscript and kind of highlighting certain things that maybe had not been as, as neon pink <laughs> as they were after Dobbs, especially the legal pieces of the book. This is not a legal book at all, but one of the things that is happening while my characters are living their lives are there's the comprehensive child care development act which would have offered universal child care and preschool to all families in america it passed the house and the senate in 1971 and was vetoed by richard nixon so that happened during this novel the other thing that was on the table was the Equal Rights Amendment, which was drafted in 1923. But um, again, in the early 70s, passed the House. There was a big movement to get it ratified. It passed the House and Senate. It went to the states for ratification. And that's a novel unto itself, how it how it wound up not getting ratified in time to become an amendment. It is actually now ratified by the requisite number of states, but it's tied up in some complicated legal stuff. So it but it is still not an amendment. And women and people of other genders do not have equal rights under the law still. Um, but this was also a time of great optimism in the women's movement. You know, in 1970, there was the Women's March for Equality in Washington, D.C. And, and real change did happen. I mean, Roe went through in 1973. So, you know, I hope that readers today will take heart from that um, and also feel galvanized to do what they can to make changes now. That was Carrie Mayer, the author of All You Have to Do is Call. The Saguaro City Music Theater is a Tucson performing arts company founded in 2022 on the idea that musical theater is not a luxury. It's a necessity for communities to grow and thrive. To celebrate this Halloween season, they are presenting Little Shop of Horrors, perhaps the only musical comedy about the love triangle between a boy, a girl, and a giant carnivorous plant. Mark McLemore spoke with director Drew Humphrey and stars Kendall Hicks and Danny Fapp about what audiences can expect. The first time I saw the film, the Roger Corman film, I was a kid staying up too late with my dad and watching weird movies. 
And it was one of the weirdest movies I'd ever seen at that age, (laughs) six or seven, I think. So I just kind of like to know briefly how the movie or the play came into your lives originally. Hi, my name is Kendall Hicks. Um, I'm playing Audrey. My best friend at the time, uh, well, she still is my best friend. Um, she was doing a production of Little Shop of Horrors, um, and she was she was playing the understudy for Audrey. So I came and I saw her, and that was the first time I'd ever seen the show. I'd always known of it, um, but you know, I saw it, and she was just phenomenal. And ever since then, I was just like, oh, that'd be such a cool show to be a part of. And then I was able to work with Saguaro City um, last December when they did It's a Wonderful Life, and I was just like, oh, I'd love to work with them again. And then I heard that they were doing Little Shop, and I was like, I'm going in. <laughs> I have to be there. Yeah. Um, and it just it just worked out. So I, I'm super excited and just like um, it's been a dream role for a while. So I'm just um, super grateful and super excited to bring such an iconic role to life. I just, I can't wait. And my name is Danny Fapp, and I get to play the role of Seymour Krellborn in Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, I think it was the movie for me, not the uh, Corman one from the 60s that you had mentioned, but the uh, 80s one directed by Frank Oz. Because um, my dad and my whole family really has been really, we have been ingrained uh, in movies and cinema our entire lives a bit. So it was really interesting at that age to see um both the marriage of kind of the 80s comedy and the Rick Moranis, that styling of movie, paired with um, musical theater in a way that I never imagined really could be possible. And um, though I wasn't involved in theater yet at that point, it kind of sparked something within me to realize there's more ways to approach it and to deal with that material and that subject matter than I was ever aware of. And Drew, as the director, how did this production come to be as well? Well, this production came to be as we were looking for something to follow up. It's a Wonderful Life from last season. And um, we saw the calendar in the Halloween season with Friday the 13th as a, as a wonderful opportunity to launch a show that, you know, is 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 fun. It is thought-provoking. It is a story that... I think we can all relate to as, as this Faustian tale that is so familiar to us, but packaged in a way that is, you know, um, pertinent to the season and uh, very accessible to a wide range of people. I can already think of one big challenge that any stage production of Little Shop is going to have. But you tell me what were some of the biggest challenges you think your team faced? The show is comprised of only 11 actors. And to tell a large story with 11 actors, you need 11 actors that can do very specific things. So making sure that we had the right personnel, the right talent to help tell this story. Um, And then coordinating the necessities of this large puppet. Um, There's four puppets that grow exponentially in size as the story gets told, and a set design that can really accommodate everything that we need to do that to close it off so that we can effectively switch out the puppets and create the environment that we can that we can nimbly move through this story. Did you have a space for a dentist office? We do. We, we, we do. We've got a we've got a, a wonderful way of bringing the dentist office to life um, and uh, a fantastic dentist in, in Tyler Wright that is uh, portraying it to its utmost comedic effect. Kendall, could you please tell me about some of the biggest influences on your interpretation of Audrey? Yeah, so um, when I got the role, I had never seen the movie before, and I I knew that Ellen Green was kind of the blueprint um, 
But I mean, I feel like so many actresses try to emulate her. And obviously, I want to keep the essence of, you know, that really sweet kind, because I think she's just such a beautiful character in that she goes through so much hardship. Um, She doesn't let that harden her and make her upset. She still remains kind um, and considerate to the people around her. I'm just trying to find my own personal um, way of like marrying all of that and infusing myself into it as well, because I really do relate to her in a lot of ways. And so I just doing everything I can to um, kind of marry everything together. Danny, I think about Seymour as being like the center of this play in so many ways. You have to have very defined separate relationships with all the other main characters, your boss, your girlfriend, and your creation. Yeah, it's um, something that we really had to explore quite a bit because there's been sort of a whole spectrum of, of ways that people have played it throughout the years. And you know, the big one sticking in my head was, of course, the, that 80s movie that was my introduction to the character. But as we began, we kind of explored ways to pare it down a little bit and to make it less of kind of a bumbling, dorky caricature and more exploring, you know, why is this person have such a low self-image of themselves and what's this environment that has constantly reinforced this idea that there's not much worth to you and that you are don't have the, the means or are worth ex- escaping your current conditions, seeing how that informs every one of these different relationships and how it kind of stunts his ability to form a meaningful relationship with Audrey and then his inability to kind of stick up for himself within uh, a work environment as well. I'm wondering, Drew, if in taking this play apart and putting it back together, right? did you find something more than a B-monster movie, love story, love triangle comedy? Absolutely. It's this Faustian tale that speaks to all of us. We can all relate to this idea that we've sacrificed a a moment of our ethics, a moment of our ideals, the way we would truly want to behave or act for our own self-benefit. That's the root of this story. And it's packaged between this fantastic love story that we can also relate to between Audrey and Seymour, which is so often we are not able to see in ourselves what someone else sees in us. And watching that unfold, you know, wrapped up into the vines of this this large puppet and plant, literally, yes. literally wrapped up that there's so much in there that that speaks to the human condition that is also wrapped up into this monster bee movie. When the play is doing things that are a little ghoulish and a little underhanded, how do you think you are learning to adapt to selling that to an audience? I feel like you have to play the text as honestly as you possibly can. I feel like that is the way um, to kind of make the absurdity of the whole situation kind of resound in terms of Audrey. You know, she she comes in and she's like, oh, I, I meant to go see Seymour's, um, his radio broadcast. I'm so sad I missed it. Um, I was handcuffed a little, you know. <laughs> you just kind of have to, um, I think the, the humor from it comes um, just from being being honest about how strange of a situation that is and how not okay it is. And the audience will understand that that's, you know, not not something that should be happening. And I think that's something that happens with a lot of the humor in the show. You know, they, um, well, a lot of it is very absurd. You know, there's a giant plant that's like a physical manifestation of, you know, greed and, um, you know, doing those terrible, like Drew was saying, um, sacrificing 
your morals to kind of um, get ahead in the world. I think I would totally agree with what Kendall was saying, where our only tool to sell it is, in fact, not to sell it at all. Um, <laughs> and one of even the uh, the great pieces of uh, theater and comedy advice that I received once, not even just about black comedy, but comedy across the spectrum, is that even though these moments are comedic to the audience, to the character, they are very, very earnest and very life and death in some situations. And I think that Audrey's song, Somewhere That's Green, is like a textbook illustration of that, where to the audience, it's funny how low her expectations are and what her idealized vision of what a stable suburban life is. But for her, there's nothing funny about it at all. I think he put that up way better than I did. (laughs) (laughs) And now Kendall Hicks as Audrey and Danny Fapp as Seymour perform a short scene from Little Shop of Horrors. (sighs) You know, sometimes I think Mr. Mushnick's too hard on you. Oh, I don't mind. I mean, after all, I owe him everything. He took me out of the Skid Row home for boys when I was just a little tyke. Gave me a warm place to sleep under the counter, nice things to eat like meatloaf and water, and floors to sweep, toilets to clean, and every other Sunday off. You know, I think you ought to raise your expectations, Seymour. Well, now that we're getting successful, I mean. Why don't you start with some new clothes? No, no offense, it's just... What with all the interviews and photo sessions, a big, important experimental botanist has got to look the part. Oh, I'm a very bad shopper, Audrey. I don't have good taste like you. Well, I could help you pick things out. You could? Sure. You'd go shopping with me? Sure. You'd be seen in a public place with me, like a department store? Sure. Tonight? I can't tonight. I got a date. But I'd like to go with you another time. Sure. I'll pencil you in. Hmm. I bet you've got a lot of dates now, huh? Well, not dates exactly, but a lot of garden clubs have been calling me, asking me to give lectures. Gee. (laughs) Imagine me giving lectures. (laughs) I never even finished grade school. That doesn't matter. You have life experience. Some experience. I don't even know what it's like to fly in an airplane. Me neither. Or eat a fancy dinner at Howard Johnson's. Me neither. Or or ride a motorcycle. Oh, it's no big deal. And besides, it's dangerous. It is? Extremely dangerous. Oh, gee, I better go fix my face. My date will be here any minute. Saguaro City Music Theater presents Little Shop of Horrors through October 29th at the Burger Performing Arts Center. There's a link for information on the Spotlight page at azpm.org. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening to Arizona Spotlight. The show is a production of AZPM. The music is by Colexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. And our assistant producer is Leah Britton. I'm Christopher Conover, in for Mark McLemore. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.